Welcome to Our Tribe, the podcast that sits down with Jewish professionals and entrepreneurs to hear their stories, share their advice, and bear their Jewish souls. Now here's your host, Rabbi Tovia Kopsty. Welcome back to Our Tribe, the podcast. My name is Tuvia Kopstein, and I will be your host today. In this episode, we meet Levi Nagel. Levi is one of the founders of Galeen Capital, a private equity firm. And we get into some of the basics of the financial world, of how he built up and got into, got, how he built up himself and his career and got to where he is today and what exactly he's doing and how he finds and sniffs out a good investment. And as you can tell from the interview, I know very little, close to nothing about this, which makes the conversation interesting because it's like, a, you know, unpacking the basics of the industry. Definitely not an industry podcast. And then another remarkable thing about Levy is that he and his family have started a community Jewish after-school school for families that would like to send to a Jewish school, but for whatever reason, don't, can't, and the amazing accomplishment that they have done through this community school. We get into that at the, towards the end of the podcast. And Levy talks a little bit about his own personal journey and understanding where he belongs in, in terms of Jewish belief and observance. That's right at the very end. I think that you're going to love this episode with Levy Nagel. And of course, before we get into it, I must mention that our tribe, the podcast is sponsored by the podcast fellowship podcastfellowship.org podcast fellowship if you haven't heard of it yet is an international young adult jewish outreach organization which helps connect jewish young adults with local mentors no matter where they are in the world where the students or young professionals are listening to classes on jewish topics jewish philosophy ethics holidays thoughts and they are preparing them, they're discussing them, they're teaching them actually to their mentors, discussing them, debating them, and earning a fellowship each week that they do this. Check it out at podcastfellowship.org. Without further ado, our tribe, the podcast with Levi Nagel. Okay, we are here with Levi Nagel. How are you, Levi? Thank God, all right. How are you, Reptuvia? Okay, also thank God, all right. Is that the beautiful California sky in the background over there? Yes, it is. Very good. Okay, so... Levy, I know you're doing you're doing private equity. You have a school. There's a lot of aspects to you, and I'd love to learn about them. Can you can you take us to the very beginning? Can we start from your upbringing and and how you got to where you are professionally? Let's start from there. Um, life's a journey. I don't know where I am at. We're always uh, going somewhere. Um, I grew up in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Um, traditional Chabad family. Um, went to the yeshiva system throughout. I graduated and became an ordained rabbi. It was a form of, that was basically the way to, to graduate. I got my smicha. Um, can, I, then, can I ask, I, I know that when you say Chabad yeshiva system, I know that usually takes people around the world. Did you get, did you get to? I did, to see? yeah. Okay. So where, where were you? So at the age of 14, um, I'm the oldest of 12. So they needed the beds in the house. So they sent me away to France. Um, and I was there in a town called Brinois on the outskirts of Paris. Um, it was a yeshiva that taught in Yiddish in, Fr- in France. Uh, mm-hmm. It was run by uh, children of Holocaust survivors. Um, and I was there for three years. Then I went to Miami Beach, South Beach. It was a yeshiva there. I was there for two years. 
And then I went to Budapest for a year. It was like a hybrid of like outreach and continuing study to study. Um, and started learning for my smicha, which is a rabbinic ordination in Budapest and finished uh, in New York and LA. I actually finished in LA and then I, I didn't want to leave LA. So I stayed here. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah. Do you have family in LA? Besides I own? do now. I have uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have some second cousins here, but I didn't really know them when I met okay. here, when I, when I moved here. And now just, just taking you back to what, what you mentioned, when you were in, in foreign countries like France and, uh, and Hungary, were you involved with, with outreach on, you know, on the level of Mifsayim, where you're going out to the community and you're helping people do a mitzvah like tefillin or things like that? Well, we would go on Friday afternoons. We would go out to uh, businesses in Paris and put tefillin on people and uh, maybe bring Shabbos candles. I don't, I don't even recall. It was a while ago. You learned some French and Hungarian? A little French, Hungarian, almost nothing. Hungarian is a very hard language. Uh huh. What language do they speak in Miami Beach? Miami Beach, uh, mostly Spanish. Okay. And there's some English too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> good. <laughs> okay. Very good. So now you're in, you're in LA. You finished your rabbinic ordination in LA, and you you found. Um, okay. So is your is your wife from LA? My wife is from LA. Yes. Okay, she actually good. she actually grew up um, around the corner from where we live right now. But I didn't know her until uh, till we met. Okay, so now c- tell me, how do you go from rabbinic ordination, which which ends in LA, to where you are now in working in private equity? What what's that journey like? Um. So in uh, two thousand three, about a year and a half after I moved to LA, um, I started working at UBS as a trainee. UBS, I guess, used to stand for Union Bank of Switzerland. Um, and I did their training program for about six months and uh, was working there for five years. Um, and, and then I moved the, over. Sorry, so I was doing tra- private wealth. Excuse me. I was doing private wealth back then, not private equity. Um, and I moved to Citigroup in 2008. My division was bought out by Morgan Stanley. And I was there uh, until the end of 2016. Um, November of 16, I re- I officially resigned. I brought in a team from Credit Suisse to work with my clients, but I resigned on November 2016 and uh, launched a private equity fund January 2017. Which is and, called? Which is called um, Glean Capital. Glean Management. Okay. GleanCapital.com is, I think, our website. Very good. Okay. So that, let's, let's, let's unpack that and, and slow that down. To start with UBS, did you have to have college? Or is just an entry I level? did have to have a college degree, which I did uh-huh. get from the yeshiva. I guess I don't have a traditional uh, secular education. Right. Um, and that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty accurate. Um, but I did, I did have a, so some of the yeshivas that I went to were accredited um, colleges and I did get a master of Hebrew letters which was okay. an accredited degree and um, they did require a college degree. Both, both firms required a college degree, but, but no, but they accepted that. Yeah. No experience in, in finance. Definitely no, no um, education in finance okay. or in math or in the English language or anything else. It sounds like there's, there's a story there. He said no education, maybe experience. Yes, but not education. So you want to explain that? Um, well, I, I didn't have any formal education in, in finance. Um, I guess I used to trade stocks as a kid, but 
Oh, so interesting. That was okay. that was that was on my own. <laughs> okay. Very good. So you could start with with UBS. You could start with with no formal education, and they, and and you're learning the ropes. At, you you said wealth management. Does that mean you were taking you were you were selling financial products like life insurance and other and and, and retirement also, plans? And, yeah. Also, yeah, it was it was a full, like a one stop shop for all your financial needs, including uh-huh. lending. We were doing lending um, back then already. And now, like all the all the larger firms are uh, work on both sides of the balance sheet today, uh, uh-huh. as, as far as I know. Um, it's like the traditional private banking that Europe had and America is coming back to after the Glass-Steagall Act was repealed. So it used to have uh, brokerage, brokerage firms and, and banks weren't allowed to be one and be part of one institution. And then I think, uh, back in the eighties, um, Citigroup, they bought Smith Barney and they repealed uh, during Clinton's era, maybe it was the nineties. Um, they repealed repealed this Glass-Steagall Act, which was in place, I think, since the Depression. Um, and then they allowed banks and brokerage firms to work together or work as one company. Mm-hmm. And um, so now, they're, you know, it's, it's a one-stop shop for all your financial needs. They try to cover everything there. But it's, wow. there's a lot of a lot of servicing. And um, I was more focused on the money management itself, which is why I, part of why I wanted to go off and uh, start my own firm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So can you tell me, like, take, take us through, it's very, very interesting to me. Take us through no formal education going into straight into the, uh, to the entry level of UBS at the time. And then, and then eventually to other positions, how, what were the, what was the experience? Like, how do you gain experience? What, what is the, what is the step? What's the step-by-step progression? Well, you have to understand there's, um, they require a college degree, but it's not in any specific Right. Um, area. So you can have someone with a degree in psychology and they'll be accepted to work at the bank. It's, I don't know why that would be any better or worse than a degree in, uh, in Talmudic studies, as an example, which may sharpen the brain more. Um, sure. so, so they were just, you know, they wanted people that went through that, 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 that are, you know, were officially educated. Um, and at the end of the day, it was a lot of sales. Um, Meaning you're bringing in clientele from people that you are, you have access to. Mm-hmm. And I guess, um, I'm from part of the Orthodox Jewish community. So I was bringing in uh, clientele from the Orthodox Jewish community. I was actually, um, I was one of the biggest producers. I think the last year that I was there in, in, uh, maybe it was 20, 2015 or 2016, uh, on Wall Street. It's like one of these publications, namely the second largest producer in the country under 40. Um, or wealth means, manager, or whatever, whatever name they were using at the time. Just, um, means, just, just to clarify, it means selling financial project products well, that are no. It, so um, I'm trying to remember the name of the uh, the way they classified it because again, the, the, the names that we were doing also changed. Like stockbroker evolved into wealth manager, and then I was private wealth manager, or whatever we were called. So I, I'm not even sure how they classified it, but it's like it's a publication. It's called On Wall Street. But I was named a few times as. Uh, Top uh, 40 under 40. The LA Business Journal, even when I was back in UBS, um, they named me top 25 or something in, in LA. But that was like pretty early on in the career. But it was just basically um, working with larger clients. Um, and in, as you know, in the Jewish community, I don't know if you know, but I'm, I'm assuming you know, um, it's mostly word of mouth. So okay. if you're doing well, you don't have to pay for advertising. And if you're not doing well, you can pay all you want. It's not really going to help. So, um, 
and thank God there were very nice people that introduced me to other people. And uh, I can tell you some stories and that's, um, that helped me grow my business. We love stories. Yeah. I'd love, I'd love to hear what, what qualities and circumstances contributed to being top, top 40 under 40 or top two under 40. Like what, how did you get there? So, um, I'll give you one specific example because he was a special person. There was a Holocaust survivor. I don't know if I, yeah, I could say his name. It's all good. His name was, um, he went by the name of Beryl Weiss and, um, a Lubavitch, a Lubavitch gentleman. And I remember I went in to see him and by the end of the meeting, he'd give me a list of, I think it was like 20 people and everyone on that list was worth over a hundred million dollars, some maybe over a billion. And he said, tell them to, you call them, tell them I tell you to call. And mm-hmm. I built, I built the clientele from there that I'm working with still, still until today. Um, that was, nice that was very helpful. That was very <laughs> nice. And he followed up with a lot of those people too, just to make sure he was, he was a special person. Um, these people just, just, I don't know how it works. You know, I'm coming from a different world. So these people, they didn't have a, somebody to work with them, to advise them and to help them grow their wealth. And, and this was a new that you were calling them or. So um, each one's different. Like um, I think with him, he had a nursing home business. So we set up a 401k plan for the business. Um, there was um, a certain people. Yeah. They, they were real estate people. They never invested in the markets. Um, and I showed them certain things and, some of them are making a lot more money in the markets than they're making in, uh, in real estate. Um, so it's, yeah, so, some, you know, it was just continuing doing what they were doing, but just doing it with me. And a lot of them was educating them on things that are available. And, um, and that would, it was the first time for them. And a lot of, them, yeah. Okay. Very good. What, when did you realize how, how many years into the industry did you realize, Hey, I like doing this. I'm good at this. <laughs> Well, I always liked this field. I went to a career counselor hmm. before I started. Okay. And money management was one of the things that kept coming up. And the career counselor, all she was doing is like, I think there's a book, What Color Is Your Parachute or something like that, where they ask you like a bunch of questions and it narrows down the areas that you like being around and uh, spending time with. And, you know, you want to work in something you enjoy. Hmm. So um, that was one of the things that kept sticking out. So uh, right. that, yeah. So you knew before you started that this was something that interests, interests you. I Got think it. so. Okay. Very good. Okay. Now tell me what you, you mentioned that um, what, what was the indication for you that you should now go off on your own and start what, what, what pushed you to go off your own, start your own clean capital private equity firm. So part of it was, you know, a lot of the uh, wealth management was, servicing in other areas that wasn't really pure um, managing money or wealth management, if you want to call it that. Uh, But also it was getting harder and harder to find value in the public markets. So, you know, after 08, 09, 10, 2011, 12, there was a lot of value, 13, 14, I was getting, I was trading bonds doing very well, but it was, it was starting to get harder. Like in 2015, it was really, it was really getting harder to find value in the public markets. And, um, some people called me out there, my partners today, um, with an idea of, and they were doing this with their own money and on a small, on a smaller scale. And they were asking if I want to invest with them. Um, they were buying shares in tech companies before they go public from employees, former employees that needed liquidity. Mm-hmm. And the, the valuations that we were able to buy those shares that were a lot 
better valuations um, or cheaper if you want to compare them to, to companies that were trading on the public markets already. Mm-hmm. Um, so I saw the value there and I said, we should, I like this, we should do a fund of this. And I said, I'm going to leave and we're going to launch a fund doing this, which thank God we did. Um, and that's what we've been focusing on. Actually, in the last year and a half, we haven't done anything. Um, yeah, because it's flipped. The, okay. uh, the public markets have gotten cheaper than the private markets and they, or in the tech space, they've fallen so fast that the people in the private space are not willing to, to admit that it's come down there and they're, they weren't, you know, we're willing to sell shares at that price. Um, and definitely not at a discount, which is what we're looking for because we're providing liquidity to illiquid companies for illiquid companies. Um, we're not providing the liquidity to the companies, excuse me. We're providing liquidity to the shareholders. Okay. Um, but these are not shares that, that are readily tradable. They're not trading yet. Um, so we've been at, a, you know, maybe a standstill, but thank God. So because uh, everything has been has gone down the last year and a half or most of the most of the in the space that we're in a lot of uh, there's, there's been a lot of um, companies that lost value in the last year and a half. Uh, so what do you what do you do? You said it flipped and now now there's more value in the public sector, you're saying, than in the private Almost, sector? Almost, yeah. Yeah. And so does that mean that that you will be doing is that possibly. is your company possibly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Possibly. <laughs> fill, fill in the rest of the sentence. It, it stays this way for a while. <laughs> Can you tell me about the name Glean Capital? It sounds like it might have something to do with uh, the Jewish nature of the leadership of the company. Um well interestingly enough, the uh but uh, we realized this after the fact. It's the same initials as my last name, N A G E L. It's the same uh, letters. Same letters, okay. Same letters, but um, scramble, word scramble. Yeah, but it was uh, one of my partners came up with the name because we are buying companies that we don't have access to um, full information, so we're gleaning information from different sources because they're not reporting quarterly reports, and so a lot of the information has to be gleaned. So we wanted that in the name, so you know it's not. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So now tell me, give me a, please a, a beginner's window into this industry. You, you already, you already talked about a little bit and you said companies that, that need liquidity, they need you to invest in them and you, and they're giving you an exchange equity in the company at, at a rate that's, that's much more advantageous, has much more potential than if you were buying public stocks. So how no, does, no, how let, does, me, let me correct you there. I would say okay. most of most of what we're doing is is not buying shares directly from the companies, meaning when they're raising money on primary rounds. We we have, but most of it is we're buying shares in the secondary market, meaning there are employee. Let's say you can have uh, an employee or early investor in XYZ company, and um, they need liquidity. The shareholder now needs liquidity, but the stock is not publicly traded, so they can't just sell their shares. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we'll negotiate with them and come to a valuation that we both agree on mm-hmm. and or a price that we both agreed to trade at. And um, and we buy the shares from them. So the money is going to them. The Most of the time, the money is going to the shareholders and not to the companies themselves. The shareholders so these are a lot work. of times, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of these shareholders are looking to start their a new company. Like they they left this company and they want to start another startup, and they uh-huh. they're selling twenty percent of their uh, of their holdings in the old company that they got shares in. You know, they, and they got shares in the old company because they were they were the founders or they were they were sometimes they were founders, sweat yeah. equity, whatever they were doing. Um, you can have early you can have uh, early stage VC funds that are closing down. Mm-hmm. Um, they have one or two positions left. They just want to close it out. It's cheaper for them to get rid of it than to hold it and pay the 
the auditing fees to keep the fund open and, and, and what, and, you know, um, so the, the sellers range, uh, you could have hedge funds that are forced to sell because they're officially liquid funds and they have, um, they have redemption notices and they have to, um, they have to, uh, give, uh, clients liquidity back, you know, clients are calling their money and they're only allowed to have a certain percentage of their fund in private companies. Um, so they're forced to sell. So the sellers range. And, um, but primarily we're providing liquidity to sellers that need liquidity that don't have access to it. And what, it, and when you give liquidity, what, what is the advantage for you? What, how, if these companies are closing down, shutting down, right? Then no, 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 no. The companies are doing very well. We hope the companies to do very well. Like, um, the stockholders, the, I'm sorry. So this is, this is what you're saying. The, the shareholders also, are, are also doing well. You know, sometimes you have, you have, um, shareholders they have options sometimes they have options the options are going to expire in a month worthless unless they exercise them they don't have the money to exercise the option so we'll mm-hmm. exercise the option in our name and give them the difference between the strike price and whatever we made up that we'll pay per share um it's it's we only like to do things that are that work for everybody um you know you could have a shareholder he's got 20 million dollars worth of stock and he wants to buy a house for five million dollars mm-hmm. he wants to buy the house he wants five million dollars now so he's not going to wait for the company to go public he'd rather take the money now and buy a house um, right. Now we're taking the risk that the company, you know, things happen. And by the time the company goes public or if they go public, there's no guarantees that they will. Like right now in the last, uh, the last year and a half, there's been almost no, um, I mean, the IPO market is pretty dry. Hey, what's the, can you tell me that? What, what's that RPO? IPO, initial IPO. public offerings, like new companies right. that yeah. are pu- going public. It's very, it's not very common right now as it oh, was okay. two years ago. What, what skills are, are necessary to thrive in this business of private equity? Well, private equity is a broad term. I mean, in, so, in your, in your, okay. So in your particular niche of, of private equity, what you're doing, what, what skills are, are you, are you and your partners bringing to the table that makes you succeed, helps you succeed in, in this, what you're trying to accomplish? I can't speak for anyone else, but I'll just say um, I have a way that I look at that I value uh, investments and um, my partners have a way that they do. And um, there's also, you know, there's a, if you're going to start your own firm, it's, you, there's a trust factor there. You know, you, you need people that understand, you know, you're not running away with their money. You know, so we've been audited from day one with by uh, one of the top four auditing firms um there's a lot of that that you have to go through like little simple things to get over and then the actual business um but i would say i have a non maybe non-traditional way of valuing things and i see things a little differently than than uh, most people and um maybe that's my gift i don't know can you unpack that and and help us uh, no No, you can't okay (laughs) It's too, maybe too. I, I, I simplify things. Like I go to the bottom line. I just look at, you know, the bottom line. Some people get caught up in different details and get lost. Um, I think I'm pretty good at staying focused on, on the bottom line and, um, seeing through the noise. Mm-hmm. And thank God it's, uh, it's worked so far. And did you, did you experiment with different when when you were coming up through the ranks in in, fi- in the financial sector? Did you figure had to figure out like what is it how to how to how to sniff out a good investment? 
like how do you how do you get that how do you get that sense so I'll, I'll give you i'll give you an example like within the public space um so like in, in the which is pretty simple because um so for instance when um the city of detroit uh, I think it was they declared bankruptcy or it was in the news that they were going bankrupt. So you have um I'm here in Detroit. Okay. <laughs> okay. Did they, did, 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 if I remember correctly, I heard about they, this, yeah. the, the city did declare bankruptcy, right? I think I think so, yeah. I want right. yeah. So it was back if I it had to be in uh, the mid early uh probably like two thousand thirteen era, fourteen mm-hmm. I'm guessing. Um so maybe fourteen to fourteen. Okay, and, and, and don't hold me to this. But um so there are people that own muni bonds, um, you know, regular mom and pop investors that have been owning muni bonds for who knows how many years with the assumption that every municipality is safe and they just go to sleep and they own bond or bond funds and, and that's it. Muni um, bond means just, just to clarify, that means they're investing in the city and they, they hope the to cities, municipalities, after. you yeah. know, local, 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 it could be states. Um, these are mostly tax-free bonds on the state and on the, on the federal level. And then on the state level, if, if you're living in that particular state, it's usually tax-free for that Got state it. too, if you're buying okay. on the state that you live in. Um, the, the, um, but when it was all over the news that Detroit's going bankrupt. So you had all these people that were dumping bonds. Uh, they just said, you know, sell my, sell my municipal bonds, not knowing what's good, what's bad. Just municipal bonds are not safe right now. Um, across the country, across the country. You had a lot okay. of that. Now, um, just to give you some context, so, and again, don't hold me to these exact uh, things, but basically before 2008, there were, um, there were a lot more large bond dealers, like actual number of bond dealers. So for instance, uh, Bear Stearns was a bond dealer. Lehman Brothers was a bond dealer. Merrill Lynch was a bond dealer. Now Bear Stearns, became part of J.P. Morgan. You know, I don't know if you remember what happened then. Uh, Lehman Brothers went away. Uh, Merrill Lynch became part of uh, Bank America. So the amount of dealers shrunk. Not only that, the dealers, which are now much bigger, also wanted to take much less risk. So they were holding a lot less on their own balance sheet. They weren't willing to hold the amount that they were holding before when there were more dealers. And they're much bigger now and they're, they want to hold less. So there's much less dealers and the amount that they're willing to hold is much less. So if there's let's just say you're uh, American funds, Nuveen funds, whatever, and you have, you get orders now, you need to sell $100 million worth of bonds. It was much harder to offload um, bonds without affecting the price than it was before. Um, it, it was actually, it, it's become a lot more illiquid than it was before 2008. Mm-hmm. I don't know where it is exactly right now, but I'm pretty sure it's still, you know, it may, may still be the case. Um now, there were certain bonds that I was I was familiar with. They're just having to be called gas bonds. The credit of the bond wasn't the municipality that issued them. They were tax-free bonds, but they weren't. The credit was uh, the larger banks. So at the time, the ones that I was trading, was, it was either Citigroup, um, Merrill Lynch, which was part of Bank America, or Goldman Sachs. Now, I was of the belief that after 2009, they weren't good. First of all, the banks were, were their balance sheets were much stronger. And they weren't going to let another of the two big to fail banks go bankrupt at that time. There was no way that the government would let that happen. So I was pretty comfortable with the credit of those large banks. Um, and 
as an example, let's just say, and again, this is not an accurate example. Let's just say a 10-year Citibank bond at the time was yielding 5%. Meaning if you bought a bond that matures in 10 years, you're going to get 5% a year, you know, give or take 5% a year in, in interest. They had these gas bonds, which were tax-free, state and federal. So if you're in California, it's worth give or take twice. So if you're going to get 5% taxable interest, you're left with, if you're in the highest tax bracket, give or take 2.5%. So if you can get 5% tax-free, it's worth 10% taxable. Okay. okay? Um, and maybe even more. In the highest brackets, more than 50% here, um, state and federal. So the, the, um, there were, these gas bonds that were backed by Citigroup, as an example, same credit rating as Citigroup, um, it was Citigroup obligation that were yielding. Well, forget what they were yielding. I called some of these bond funds, and I, I you know, I looked through the 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 uh, the largest holders of these gas bonds were, and I knew that they were having they needed to raise cash, so I would offer them. I'll tell buy, let's say, a hundred million dollars worth of your bonds at. Uh, a 6% yield, which is really equivalent to 12. Now, initially they're like, you know, they hung up the phone on me, but then on a Friday afternoon when they were getting really nervous, if, uh, if, uh, Monday morning they're going to need, you know, who knows what and what it's going to cost them. So they started selling me those bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, when I say me, then I would call my clients, get permission and we would trade. Um, so we managed to accumulate, let's say between a hundred and $200 million worth of those bonds. Um, for your clients, for my clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, the insurance companies got smart. Now they didn't necessarily need the tax free interest, but 6% is more than 5%. So they started coming in and bidding them down. And eventually, you know, the prices, the you know, things normalized, but I was happy, you know, collecting 6% tax free for 10 years, assuming it, I'll, I'll just hold it out as, as, as using the example that was given before, which is equivalent to 12. Um, but within a year, the bond values now went up. Again, I don't remember the exact number. Let's just say the bond values, besides for the interest we were collecting, went up 30, 40%. Okay. And some of the, some of my clients are using leverage, but even if not, you're getting, okay. But about a year later, Puerto Rico was in the news. They're going bankrupt. They started, you know, they, 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 they were all over the headlines. Now, Puerto Rico is also another bond that there's a specific tax rule and I'm, I'm talking too much, but Puerto Rico for, for, for is tax free in every state. You don't okay. have to be, buy a California bond to be tax-free in California. If you, a Puerto Rico specifically, Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico, Guam, and I think the U.S. Virgin Islands, there's like there's specific rules there. Those bonds are, are tax-free in every state. So even if you have a, a mutual fund that's a California-specific mutual fund, they would usually own Puerto Rico too. Or if there's a New York-specific mutual fund, they would own Puerto Rico too because it's tax-free in New York or tax-free in California. So Puerto Rico bonds are held everywhere around the country. And... It was literally reputational risk to own Puerto Rico. So if you were like, uh, you were getting your statement and you went to look through the, you, you owned the bond fund again, mm-hmm. and you look through their holdings and you see the name Puerto Rico, you start freaking out like, you know, just sell my whole fund. I don't want to have anything to do with Puerto Rico. Now, some of these Puerto Rico bonds had insurance. Okay. So, um, we did the analysis on two of the insurance companies, which, you know, the, the stronger rated insurance companies, and they had more in reserves. Than their total exposure to Puerto Rico. Okay. So theoretically, Puerto Rico could go bust and pay zero, which is unlikely, but the insurance companies will still have the money to pay off those bonds. Mm-hmm. Puerto Rico alone wouldn't take the insurance companies under. Besides for that, the reserves 
first have to go to pay off their obligations, their insurance obligations before they, before, the, so that, for that reason, the bonds that they insured were rated multi-notches higher than the insurance company's own bonds. So let's say the insurance company's own bond were rated triple B, the bonds that they insured were rated double A or double A minus. So, but you had these taxable bonds again of the insurance company, which are rated triple B, were yielding around 6%. So again, I did this where I was going after the funds and I was saying, I'll take your bonds that you can specifically, you know, these two insurance companies and I'll pay you, I'll buy them at a 7% yield. And again, managed to accumulate a nice amount of, a nice amount of, uh, also being $120 million worth of those bonds before the prices changed. And again, within a year, the value of those bonds have gone up because again, people started realizing, well, those are insured. They could start, you know, differentiating. Um, the values went up about 40%. Plus we got, you know, our interest. That was, thank God, beautiful, uh, a, a very nice trade. But wow. that was, that was again around, that was getting closer. The, the year after that, that was like already 2015, 16. And then it was, as I said, it started getting harder to find value. But those are, but every once in a while, you know, Hashem sends us, uh, what we need when we need it. And it's, um, and gives but, us the tools to be able to act on it. So that's, that's how I see it. Wow. So, so it takes a lot of, uh, a lot of being aware of what's going on. It takes a lot of creative thinking, it sounds like. And, uh, yeah, that's, that was the, the short answer to that. You, you gave a long answer, but if you had to break that down into a short answer of what, <laughs> what, are, what are the qualities that help you sniff out a good events that you're aware of the bankruptcies and you're aware, you, you're aware of where the insurance, where they are in insurance and what's, you know, you have to have this. Sorry. You have to, you have to, you know, you have to, um, <laughs> get to the bottom line and avoid the noise. And sometimes you can find gems in, uh, in the sand. Yeah. Hey, Levy, before we met, one thing I heard about you is that, is that you have started a school, a Jewish school in Los Angeles. Can you tell us about how you came to start the school, who the school services? Sure. Um, I wouldn't say I started it, but um, there's, there were, I, I had heard that there were, um, well, I know there's tens of thousands of Jewish kids in public school that are not getting a Jewish education. But more specifically, I had heard in, um, there's two, there's two, uh, large, uh, Orthodox communities in Los Angeles proper. Uh, there's like the Pico Robertson area and then there's La Brea, Hancock Park area. Mm-hmm. Then there's more, there's Beverly Hills and then the Valley also has a very large Jewish community. Um, how far away is but, the valley? Is the valley from main Los Angeles communities? Probably about twenty minutes. Okay, you know, yeah. uh, without traffic, depending. The valley is large, so depending where in the valley yeah. you can go deep. In, okay, sure. and there's many different areas. Um, but I had heard that there were about a hundred kids in the Pico Robertson area at a public school called the Canfield School that were, go- were going to school with the Almacos from from families, Orthodox families that um, simply couldn't afford. A Jewish education and the families had no choice to send their kids to public school. So I figured I have to tie it anyway. And, um, there are millions of empty square feet of Jewish real estate during those hours, meaning right after public school ends, it ends pretty early, like two, two o'clock, uh, most days and like one o'clock. Some of the other days are one fifteen and two fifteen. I'm not even sure. Um, okay. So Jewish, think, Jewish real estate, you mean empty warehouses? Like what? Empty, you know, empty shoals. Okay. Uh, you know, empty synagogues that are, they use them on Shabbos or they use them, uh, in the morning and, the, and at night. But during those hours, they were, they were basically sitting empty. Mm-hmm. Um, so I figured I can pay for some teachers 
to come and teach these kids more or less for free, maybe charge them something a little so they, the parents value it. Um, and um, it actually, so we started off with about 20 kids in the Pico Robertson area. And then by the time the year was over, we had opened a second location we had in, in the Valley and we had about 150 kids uh, coming. Now we have several locations. Um, so that's, that's really how it came about. Wow. How many locations are there now? I think there's four or five locations. We had more before COVID, uh-huh. like everything closed down besides for one. And then we're slowly reopening them. Now what's, what's very interesting about this to me is that the, the generation of, let's say my parents who, who went to public school and then after school, they had the Hebrew school, the Talmud Torah, and they resented it so much that there was, that they had to be, that they were Jewish and they had to go to school longer than everyone, all of their non-Jewish counterparts and, and their, their colleagues and peers. And, and it just became a, something that they, they despised and rejected and felt like it was a burden. So how do you make, how do you make this after school program attractive and something that the, the, the kids actually want, want to be a part of? So it's funny, exactly what you said. There were a lot of naysayers saying it's never going to work. Uh, everyone's going to hate it. And they always hated it. And yeah, so, and I think a lot of the naysayers were coming from the private schools that were a little nervous that were, I take away their, 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 their students. Um, but in reality, uh, we've, I guess the way we teach today, you know, positive, positive reinforcement instead of however they did it in the old days. Um, it makes it makes it more enjoyable mm-hmm. um but we've actually heard stories like right in the beginning like parents were saying that they would threaten their kids if they weren't behaving at home they wouldn't be able to come they wouldn't be able to go to the the Nagelsrush academy afterwards um so that wasn't the case at all and uh actually in terms of the you know the, the schools being worried we sent over well over 100 kids that never been to jewish school um to jewish schools and they went to the same age classes they were you know so like a, a eight-year-old was able to go into the eighth grade in, in the eight-year-old class at the jewish school by just learning the two hours a day that that um from our school and they were on par with the private schools because at the end of the day there's only about two to two and a half hours of actual judaic studies in private schools you know they have the secular studies and pe and whatever whatever else going on so at the end of the day about two recess, and a half. yeah right so um so the two hours a day of pure Judaic studies was enough to keep them on par with the, with the same children of their age. So they're getting knowledge wise, they're getting the same, more or less the same education as uh, kids going to a, a Jewish school full time. I would say it's probably better to be in a Jewish school, you know, um, the environment, but if it's not an option, this is option plan B. Wow. Okay. So the, most of the, of the students of the, of your academy were, were not were not the kind that would would be going to Jewish school if they could afford it, or were they the kind that were they the, the types of families that would like to send to Jewish school but they couldn't afford it? By the way, Plan B is probably not the right analogy. I shouldn't have said that. But um, so, in answer to your question, it really depends on the area that we're mm-hmm. in. So, Pico Robertson, they are mostly Orthodox uh, families that would would much rather their kids in Jewish school, mm-hmm. uh, but they simply couldn't afford it. Um, we've had letters from parents are saying like they're so grateful, like the kids not can say Elena in the Siddur next to their father. They couldn't, you know, they were going to show every Shabbos. They didn't know how to read. And the other kids did. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so that's like mostly the, the Pico Robertson area. And um, like the mothers drop off the kids covering their hair. Uh, these are kids going only to public school before. And now they're going with their tits out and they actually proud. They're proud of their, their, um, 
their heritage and it's like um and they're like a group they there's like areas in the valley which are mostly traditional let's say israeli families um they like it um but they weren't going to spend the money to go and i don't know if they could afford to send mm-hmm. them to, to private school um and they like that the kids learn hebrew and they're like even secular israeli families when they're living outside of israel they're much more interested in their in their kids getting a, a full jewish education mm-hmm. um and it brings a lot of families closer to Judaism too. Um, you have Beverly Hills. We have a location in Beverly Hills, which is pretty active. Um, maybe they could afford it, but they, you know, it's, they don't prioritize that. But if it's available, you know, great. Um, so, and again, I don't know. Not everybody in Beverly Hills could afford it, but I'm saying it's possible that you know some of them could. But um, so that's it. Really depends on the area, the geographical area, usually. Um, the reason that they're going. You have single moms that uh, work in a full-time two jobs and this is cheaper than babysitting, but you know, it's all good. Do you think this, this model, do you think it uniquely works in the LA area or could it, have you ever talked with, with people that you know around the world that, and, and suggested that this could have, this could work in, else, in other places? So the, 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 the tuition, you know, they call it the tuition crisis is primarily an American problem. United mm-hmm. States, like uh, Israel, I think subsidizes um, the cost of education. I think Canada does, England does, mm-hmm. but I think in America, because of the separation of church and state, um, it's it's primarily a a so um, it's primarily a, a, a it's unique to the United right. States, mm-hmm. um, but this definitely can work in other areas. So, like in areas where there's a lot of Jewish kids going to public school. In one area, that's very easy. It's low-hanging fruit. You open a program right next to it. That's what we did. We do. We open them right ne- right near the schools. Um, there is, I think, someone we've given the curriculum to in uh, curriculum to in Oregon that's using that's doing this, I believe. And um, I know the the um, the Central Chabad. Um, they were looking at maybe implementing this around the country. So if if it's areas that have a large Jewish population, it's definitely definitely doable and should be done and we'd gladly give the curriculum for free and help them start whatever they want to do has this become a community organization where there's things like uh, like yearly fundraisers and you speak and you have and you bring in people who have benefited and is it, or it's mostly the the, the nagel families uh, is behind it no i'm not gonna comment on that right now. okay that's fine <laughs> you can i've uh, tried it's very hard it's very hard to raise money and i call a couple for people that do it's very, very hard. But do I have, there are people that help. Um, it's just very hard to. Uh, right. Right. And can you can you tell us uh, like those the type of stories that would move people? Uh, I'm sure I'm sure there's so many of them. But is there is there any anyone that you can tell us about that benefited from their 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 time? Those those two hours on a daily basis. Um, you, you said in general, you know, coming to pump, coming to pump, coming back to, to Jewish schools, proud, and and even if it's not coming back to Jewish, coming to the Jewish schools, uh, uh, I'm so the, too much. The, 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 the woman that runs it uh, gives me <laughs> letters once a year from parents um, uh, and how grateful they are, and and a lot of tear jerkers. But um, you know, I can I can read you some letters I got, but I don't know. It's a it's really a beautiful thing. Yes, it's amazing. I'm sure it gives you a, it gives a lot of meaning to your day. I mean, uh, we, you can find, you can find meaning in the fact that you're helping all of your clients to, 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 to do what they need to do in the world, but, but to, to, in such a, in such a direct way, 
as a, as a observant Jew to help other people connect and learn. And, uh, you know, it's just, I'm sure it gives you a lot of satisfaction. There's a lot more that has to be done. <laughs> okay. It's not that they say, right? You just, yeah. you don't have to finish every job, but you have to, uh, you know, do what, do what you can to keep going. That's right. You have to keep going. Okay. Okay, ladies, there now uh, here. Since we're we are addressing for the most part young Jewish adults, and they're coming from all types of Jewish backgrounds. Uh, some, like you described, they might be Israeli. They might have a lot of Jewish knowledge. They might have very little Jewish knowledge. Is there any message that you'd like to give to our audience about what you think about what it means to be Jewish? Why look into Judaism? Anything you'd like to give over? Pearl of wisdom. That's uh. <laughs> that's a that's a uh, tall order. Um, well, I'll tell you from my own experience. I mean, but everyone has their journey. Um, I personally went through. I grew up religious, but started questioning it later on in life, and um, I went through every logical argument uh, that I can find going back and forth and God exists. And I was just at, at a crossroads. It didn't make it, you know, you can, you can argue both ways. Logically, you can argue both ways. If all you're using is logic, there's, you're never going to get a definitive answer in either direction. Um, and that's why atheists, I, I don't think they're, uh, if so, if so, if agnostic, I can understand, but a, a, an atheist uh, and someone can say that definitively there's, you know, they're not too bright. Um, because again, there, there's no way you can, you can logically prove one way or the other, but, um, to make a long story short, um, <laughs> I've met some people over the years that it, it, number one, I, so let's say call it mystics, um, or clairvoyant people, um, that, opened my mind to the fact that there is more than I can touch, feel, or logically understand. And then I've had some experiences myself, which um, I know it's real. Um, and it's part of our religion. We, I think the, the Maimonides, he said the first of the, princi- the 13 principles of faith. Of faith is not, he doesn't use the word lahamin, amun. He doesn't say to believe in God. He says, leida, to know that there is a uh, one source uh, that created everything. Um, and to know you have to experience. So there's work that that's entailed. Um, you may have to get there through meditation or, you know, but um, to know that there's God, you have to experience it. And uh, everybody has their path. But I think the, uh, the good book says, Dear Shua Hashem Vimatsu, seek God and you'll find him. If you're sincerely seeking, he will reveal himself to you in the way that you need to be revealed to to help you continue growing okay lady thank you very much and one question i have to ask growing up in crown heights and growing up in the chabad community did you have a connection to the rebbe and when you were were yes um i was i was young um so i didn't appreciate uh everything that was going on um the rebbe definitely um was next level there's you don't have people like that today 
Um, I've had interactions. I've gotten hundreds of dollars from him um, and some sperm. Uh, my father used to explain that he gave out one dollar every time he met him. So the Rebbe would give out dollars, and then he would want you to give you know a similar amount to charity. Um, and sometimes it was more than one dollar he was giving out. There was times he gave out five dollar bills. Okay. Uh, so I was living in Crown Heights, and I would, and in and, and the later years uh, of his life, he was giving he was giving out dollars almost every night. Uh, he used to do it Sundays, but then like uh, he started giving in the evenings too, and it was almost every night the last couple of years that he was doing this before. Um, so yes, I've met him many times. Uh, I appreciate him more now than I did then. Um, what was your question again? <laughs> my, my interaction, but again, I was, I was, uh, I was maybe, uh, what was it? 94. I was I, I, definitely before my bar mitzvah. Uh, before he got, he had a stroke. So, um, so I was a child. So when you're talking about how in, in your life, there was a time that you, that you came to, to question your, where you stand in terms of God and, and understanding and knowing God and then, and then meeting people. I mean, I wonder as, as somebody who affiliates with Chabad, who has, you know, from a Chabad family, did you, does, does the, your encounters with the Rebbe, did that help strengthen um, anything or, or, or learning about what he, what he said and what he had to teach and his example? Did that, does that strengthen that knowledge? Let's say that one more time. I, I, I didn't understand your question. <laughs> okay. Sorry. So there's, what I mean to ask is there, there's for a, a person who, who grew up with this leadership of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, that there's usually for, for someone who affiliates, who grew up with Chabad, there's usually a special connection, emotional connection with that, with that leader, with that Rebbe. So does that emotional connection and did that inform your own personal search? And does that, does that strengthen anything in your own, you know, was it here's somebody, I think I'm saying too much, but I think, do you understand what I'm asking? What's the question in, in, in three words? In three words. Oh, the question is: Did the, did, did, did did the Rebbe, the Rebbe did, did knowing the Rebbe or learning learning what the Rebbe's teach what the Rebbe taught help you in your own understanding of your connection to to God? Definitely, it still does till today. Yeah, but okay. but when I was searching, I wasn't able to um, to physically have a two way conversation with the Rebbe. This was right. much later. So um, you know, let's call it outside sources brought me back in. Got it. Okay. Levy. I guess I had sparks that were on the outside. I had to bring back, you know, that's what they teach in Kabbalah, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, the spark, you got, you got some exposure to those sparks early on, and then you're able to, uh, to consolidate them. Let's call it, I, I got exposure to the light uh-huh. and then, uh, and then was chasing spark. There we go. <laughs> okay. Levy, I re- we really appreciate that you spent so much of your time with us this afternoon and and shared your the the whole journey i mean very you know snippets and, and snapshots of the journey along the way and, and insight industry insight and insight into into what you're doing with the community outreach thank you so much and thank you for taking an interest yeah. i'm honored all Hazak right keep going thank you you too okay thank you okay bye bye
You've just listened to another great episode of Our Tribe, the podcast, brought to you by the Podcast Fellowship and hosted by Rabbi Tovia Kopstein. Tune in each week every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time to hear more great episodes of Our Tribe, the podcast. If you have any suggestions or questions, email us at ourtribe at podcastfellowship.org. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to help the tribe thrive.